You're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Faye Parks. Thank you for joining us. We're giving our volunteers the night off for the holidays. Instead of our usual programming, we're putting the spotlight on some of this year's reporting on housing. First, some context from WORT's former news producer, Nate Weggehout. This summer, he got the details on Madison's latest housing snapshot. It presented a stark reality, what's actually available, and how much it costs. Even as the city of Madison sees more and more housing developments approved each year, not enough is being built to keep up with the flow of people, leading to increased strain and competition in both the city's rental and home ownership markets. That's according to the city's latest housing snapshot report, an annual report that gives a glimpse into the current conditions of housing in Madison. Last year, the city approved 2,350 housing units to be built, above average but still below the record amount of units approved the year before, when over 3,200 units were approved. But those housing units, mostly rental apartments, are filled almost immediately after being built, with less than 4% of the city's apartments currently sitting vacant. With that low vacancy rate brings increased demand, and with increased demand brings increased costs. Matt Freider is a community development specialist with the City of Madison. He says that while the city has always struggled with building enough housing units, a recent influx of higher-income households moving to Madison has created a new type of strain on the housing market. Looking specifically at the past three-year period, you know, beginning of the pandemic through now, we're seeing a lot of growth in the city, but we're especially seeing growth in higher-income households, number one. And, you know, we've always talked about ourselves as a city that has seen, you know, pretty equal growth in owner households as well as renter households. But with that growth of high income households that we've seen, folks who are moving to Madison, we're also seeing a really intense pressure being put on the the ownership market for folks who want to buy homes that we haven't necessarily seen before. The report says that fewer and fewer homes are being listed on the market and those that are sell quickly and for above the asking price. While this is beneficial for someone selling their home, it means that people looking to buy a home, especially first-time homeowners, are having to pay more and more to afford a house. A decade ago, the median price for a home in Madison was around $190,000. But today, that same house costs, on average, around $390,000. And because there's a restricted supply, folks are in more competition as they go to buy their first homes, buy a different home. And that's what we're seeing in the market is increased numbers of offers, increased prices, reduced contingencies in order to get those homes. Freighter says that as it becomes more difficult to purchase a home in Madison, those households instead go to rental units, creating even more competition in the rental market. And most of the new apartment buildings being built are not considered within the budget of the average renter. An affordable apartment should cost under 30% of someone's monthly income, which for a Dane County renter is around $1,100. But according to the report, the average cost of an apartment built within the past 30 years costs around $1,300, well above that average 30% mark. Freighter says that while it makes sense that newer construction would be more expensive than older buildings, that doesn't help someone needing a place to live. 
but whether it's subsidized or whether it's market rate, the construction costs are going to be really similar between them. In order to make those affordable for folks who are living in the city, that's where the city has to come in and provide additional financing, you know, with other partners uh, who provide additional subsidies as well, namely the low-income housing tax credit, to make sure that apartment rents ultimately aren't reflective of the construction costs, but what folks can afford to live in those units. State law bars municipalities from mandating any housing development be considered affordable, but Frater says that bringing more housing units to Madison would help bring relief to folks struggling with the city's housing prices. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Affordable housing has been a hotly debated issue in the city of Madison for years. In September, WORT reporter Sarah Gabler reached out to several alders on the Common Council to hear their perspectives. Madison's housing market is in crisis. Rents are rising, and regular folks can't find a reasonably priced home anywhere near the isthmus. To understand what makes housing affordable, WORT invited 20 of Madison's alders to talk with us about how they defined affordable housing. Seven were available to share their perspective. These city council members concur that Madison is experiencing a housing crisis and they say the Common Council is poised to do something about it. Earlier this month, Northside Alder Amani Latimaburis called for the creation of a housing task force, a proposal slated for discussion at tonight's meeting of the Madison Housing Strategy Committee. Many alders point to the local and federal definitions of affordability that are tied to household income. They reiterate that when a household spends more than 30% of its income on housing, they count as housing burdened. Federal definitions, which the city uses to determine subsidies, calculate affordability based on Area Median Income, or AMI. According to the recent housing snapshot report, 11,695 of what are considered low-income households at less than 30% AMI have to, quote, rent up, which means that they're cost burdened. Meanwhile, 13,495 households at greater than 80% AMI are renting down, which means that for them, housing is affordable. But affordability means so much more than the cost of rent. Derek Field of East Madison highlighted how transportation costs, including auto payments, insurance, gas, repairs, or bus fare, should factor into housing affordability. You know, housing affordability and transit, uh, transportation affordability are tied together. So if we're relying on um, more expensive modes of transportation like single occupancy vehicle ownership and that plus housing is over 50 percent, I think that that's what's often missing in the conversation about housing affordability. Alderfield says he's concerned about elderly constituents whose housing costs may be fixed but are struggling to keep up with rising taxes and grocery bills. Alder Marsha Rummel, who represents parts of the Isthmus, says housing at multiple price points is necessary. She says the problem with much of the new development is that it's serving only the top 10 percent of the income market, and it's causing displacement and gentrification. And then sometimes what happens is these new developments that get approved demolish what's you know naturally uh, occurring affordable housing, and you know, just what's the built environment. And, you know, the argument is, oh, it's used really hard in poor condition. But, you know, at some point we're just throwing away those lower priced units and not replacing them. Older Bill Tischler says that developments built on old shopping mall parking lots 
have created monumental growth in his district on the near west side, especially in the area of workforce housing, also called middle-income housing. Tischler adds that access to transportation and amenities are intertwined with housing, and more of it is needed near bus lines and public services like hospitals. It'd be very affordable for people to maybe find uh, housing, you know, five, ten miles outside of Madison. But trying to find that same kind of housing that's convenient, close to the amenities, that's becoming far more difficult. When it comes to students, campus alder MGR Govindarajan wants to see options outside new luxury apartments. Yeah, so affordable housing for students really comes down to um, just being able to like pay your groceries at the end of the day and being able to still live a life after paying rent. Um, so putting a number to it, that, that comes down to about 600 to $800 is what most students say. Um, we sent out a survey earlier this summer with 1,700 respondents, and the vast majority of students had a range around that number. However, there isn't much student housing at that price point, and whatever does exist is in disrepair. Sabrina Madison's Far East Side constituents, who range from students to retirees and working-class folks, are finding it necessary to use or depend on resources like food banks or organizations that can pitch in for rent. One issue Alder Madison notices is that her constituents' hourly pay rates aren't rising in proportion to their rent. Folks are stressed out about the the amount that they have to pay from their paycheck in order to afford rent. And then you have folks who have to take on living with other people or, you know, having a couple of roommates. And then you have situations now where their leases are not being renewed and they're in a situation where they don't make, they don't earn three times the rent. They may not have a credit score that is at least 650, for example, and they don't have the savings should they even get approved um, to pay both the rent and security deposit. When you're living paycheck to paycheck, losing your lease or experiencing a small hiccup in your paycheck can cause a housing crisis. No matter where you live, though, says Alder Dina Nina Martinez Rutherford of East Madison, you're impacted by the housing crisis. The housing crisis impacts all of us. And the reason it does is because more people are moving into the city. The higher our prices go for property, whether you want to purchase or rent, the cost of materials is increasing. And quite honestly, the state prohibits us from doing a lot of things like rent freeze and inclusionary zoning. To address the scope and complexity of the issue, just about everyone I spoke with said we will need a host of responses. They suggest increasing subsidies and housing density, raising the affordable housing budget, land banking, and new development across the region. Overall, though, the city will have to get creative. As Alder Tag Evers of Near West Madison asserts, the city can't delay addressing this issue. The city's makeup and its area median income is constantly changing as new people join the population. On a year-to-year cycle, we can target our public dollars increasingly to address what is essentially a market failure. It's an element of market failure where we assume that the private market can sufficiently meet the needs of housing individuals in our city. We can't build housing through the private market that's affordable for folks. Alder Evers would even like to see the private sector get involved, like tech companies did on the West Coast. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler.
she needs a rest The kids are playing up downstairs Sister's sighing in her sleep Brother's got a date to keep He can't hang around Over the last year, the Common Council has taken numerous steps to account for Madison's growing population and the shrinking market of affordable units. Last winter, I got the details on a controversial proposal, changing the zoning in nearly a third of the city to allow more unrelated people to live in single-family homes. The proposal would affect about one-third of the city of Madison. It would allow more people to live together in places zoned for single-family homes. And the change, say proponents, is aimed at addressing one of Madison's ongoing crises, a lack of truly affordable housing and a need to increase housing density. The proposal would up the number of renters who can live in a house zoned as a single-family home from the current standard of two unrelated people up to five unrelated people in one home. And it would standardize occupancy limits across the board for all housing rather than using a different standard for renters and homeowners. Zoning Administrator Katie Bannon outlined three main reasons behind the proposal. One is to increase or improve equity. Second is to increase housing choice and access. And lastly, because the current practice has negative impacts. The Plan Commission has supported the changes, pointing to the need to update standards at a time when finding housing in Madison is both difficult and expensive. While the change could markedly improve the market for some renters, some homeowners are not so optimistic. Those opposed to the proposal say the proposed redefinition could change the nature of their neighborhood. What I haven't heard and what I think is being ignored is the rights of homeowners, of people who have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars to be, a, if for example, a single family a homeowner in a neighborhood. Those opposed also say they're wary of large property management companies infiltrating the neighborhood, of rental housing becoming run down, or disruption to their surroundings. But Bannon says it's unlikely rental companies will buy up houses. According to city research, there's not enough profit for landlords to do so. A couple of reasons we think this will be limited. Um, nationally, when we look, um, single-family house rentals are usually more um, small-scale operations. We find this to be true in Madison as well. Um, although there are some larger investment groups that do buy up groups of single-family houses, they tend to go to inexpensive houses and places like the Southwest, uh, places like Florida where property taxes are low and property maintenance costs are low. Um, both of those are higher in Wisconsin. And she adds that concerns about student occupation and noise are outside the scope of zoning regulation and are instead the police department's responsibility. A lot of how they approached it reminded me a little bit of how we in zoning enforcement approach enforcement and that, you know, the first time we get a call about something, really our goal instead of being punitive is to get compliance. So we're going to really talk with the person, explain um, what needs to be done, and then hopefully get compliance. And that's what happens in many of the cases. Bannon points to another reason to make a more flexible zoning code, equity. She says that sometimes the current standard gets abused and the city ends up with racist or classist complaints. And phone calls with complainants, we hear things like, 
these people don't belong here. I don't think these people are related. This household looks different and they shouldn't be allowed to live here. The proposal floated by a contingent of alders and Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway has gotten support from the plan commission. The proposal comes as the average rent has jumped. According to Rent Cafe, the average rent for an 850-foot apartment in Madison is $1,491 a month. Even mayoral candidates are weighing in on the zoning change. Satya Rhodes Conway defended the position, calling it necessary to address the growing need for housing. Scott Kerr, a longtime employee of the city's traffic engineering division, agreed, saying that concerns over noisy college students were overblown. But Gloria Reyes firmly opposed the change, saying it would bring chaos to small neighborhoods across the city. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. One month after that story aired, the Common Council voted to change the definition of family. Former news producer Nate Weggehout brought us that update. After an informational hearing on Madison's sister city of Canafing, the Gambia, the Common Council met for over five hours, voting to allow more unrelated renters to live in one house. In about a third of the city, only two unrelated renters were allowed to live in a home. Now, that has been bumped up to five unrelated renters. The change has seen heated debate by the community with over 150 pages of public comment, both for and against the change, registered with the city. This is not changing the definition of family or revising the definition of family. This is changing the rights of non-resident landlords. And I have somebody living next to me that has 10 people living in the home where there's excessive noise. And groups of three to five adult renters outbidding two earner income couples. There are multiple complaints from neighbors about parties, people urinating in their backyard, trash, sidewalks getting shoveled, grass not being mowed. Changing the zoning code doesn't create more housing, which is what we urgently urgently need today. More cars and traffic. A non-owner-occupied house will create Mifflin-like areas in the most vulnerable neighborhoods. I keep hearing about a housing crisis. We have a shortage, I get it, but is it really a crisis? But still, some spoke in support of the zoning change. Um, And I I can't imagine from my experience that we're going to see a huge rush to carve up common spaces like bedrooms. I certainly wouldn't advise it. I have always been a renter and have many times split housing costs with other adults in residential neighborhoods. Those opposed to this change are literally saying you don't want me in your neighborhood. The proposed change would address this issue and make the city a fairer, more tolerant place for everyone to live. Passing this ordinance is going to help our homeless population. Many of the neighborhoods on the near west side were historically redlined. And if we say that near west side neighborhoods are exempt from this definition, we're essentially creating a modern red line saying that these neighborhoods should only be accessible if you're wealthy enough to buy a home or rent an expensive unit. Two alders, Regina Vitiver of District 5 and Tag Evers of District 13, offered an amendment to the proposal, bringing the number of unrelated renters who can live together down to three, and to sunset the change in 2026 to reevaluate how the change affected the city at large. Alder Evers says that, as is, he is concerned that it will open the door to allow landlords to exploit renters. This is a landlord-friendly change, and it's little wonder to me that this proposal was widely embraced by the real estate industry. The reason Alder Vitiver and I wanted to slow this down was to study this further to explore our options, not to kill this, but to improve it. That's why this amendment embraces and, and accepts all the changes that are included but for one area. That amendment was shot down on a 16-3 to vote. When it came time for the final vote, Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney of District 1 voted against the change, saying that the council did not spend enough time researching how it would affect people of color throughout the city. While I support updating the definition of family, I do not support the rush 
to approve this ordinance. We have the opportunity to hold absentee landlords accountable. The focus is on students, but the impact of this legislation will impact all across the entire city. But Alder Patrick Heck of District 2 says that there's no time to wait because any delay would only further the lack of housing available to students. If I were one of the hundreds, maybe thousands of students who were lined up looking for housing, I I think it was last semester uh, as they were scrambling to find somewhere to live, I would take an interest in this and not understand why the the student-dominated areas of the city would not open up to allow me as a student to find housing. This certainly expands housing choice, but it also has the potential to supply extra housing for students who are struggling as we've seen. Ultimately, the change to the definition of family passed on a 13 to 6 vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Thank you. Our next registrant, I'm sorry, there's no applause. Thank you very much. Just last month, the Plan Commission approved changing the zoning for a downtown lot, a change that would allow the city to develop an affordable housing complex as tall as 10 stories. I investigated that divisive proposal. Brayton Lot, or Block 113, is a two-acre surface parking lot owned by the city just off the Capitol Square on East Washington. It spans a whole block and is the last full block downtown that's completely undeveloped. Right now, it's serving as the staging area for the city's bus rapid transit project. But soon, it could be affordable housing. The Madison Plan Commission voted 5 to 1 to double the maximum allowed height of any buildings developed on the lot. Alder Juliana Bennett of downtown Madison said the increased maximum height would create more possibilities for a city struggling with a housing shortage. Ultimately, I think that in respect for our entire city's outcry for affordable housing and everything like that, we shouldn't lock ourselves into one building type. This allows us to be as creative and flexible as possible. And Alder Derek Field of East Madison 
says that the 10-story maximum does not guarantee that the final designs will reach that height. I wanted to note, too, that the building height limits that we're talking about are maximums. And so it is maybe intuitive to think in terms of what that maximum building height would look like. But given some of the um, you know market constraints that others have raised tonight, I think we don't know that it would be 10 stories across the entire block, right? I think we should see what's viable. And I think the best way to do that is to not limit ourselves arbitrarily. The Brayton Lot Redevelopment Project has been the subject of some community engagement work already. And city officials say they're working to keep the community involved in the whole process. In a survey this summer of 128 respondents, more than half said they wanted to see affordable housing prioritized over other uses, like market rate housing or private parking. But not all members of the community are on board. Some neighbors say changing the zoning would change the character of the first settlement district and create a precedent for increasing future zoning changes in the area. Only two people spoke in the public comment period and both were opposed. Here's Bob Kleba of East Gorham Street. Uh, normally, plan commission is not the wild west of zoning. I oppose this uh, resolution because the current zoning actually favors affordable housing, which is what I believe the sponsors of this resolution intend to promote. These sponsors wrongly believe that increasing the height will provide affordable housing. Kleba adds that the increased maximum would simply make the lot irresistible to developers looking to establish 100% market rate housing. Alder Marsha Rummel, who represents the area where the lot is located and sits on the Urban Design Commission, agreed with Kleba's assessment. Some developer will get really excited and maybe spend more money than somebody who's going to provide the 30 to 50% AMI in the lower heights. But the city is in a unique position because it owns the property. Heather Stouter, director of the city's planning division, says city leaders will have an unusual amount of say in how much affordable housing should be set aside. At the end of the day, the, the city does you know, hold the cards as, well, as far as what will end up on the site based on the fact that we do own it and, and we'll be letting it for a request for proposals for development or perhaps developing it ourselves. We, we have not determined how best yet to move forward on this site, but the city is in control of the decisions in the end. Only Commissioner Maurice Shepard voted against the change. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Just one week after our initial reporting, the Common Council voted on the zoning amendment. Alder MGR Govindarajan of the West Side says a potential 10-story building would not obstruct views of the Capitol. The previous zoning for the site, which only allowed building heights about half of the new maximum, was established in an effort to preserve a nearby historic district. It just so there's that step back between a tall building and then that four-story and then the lower residential neighborhood, which is the first settlement neighborhood. Janelle Allen lives in the first settlement district. She says the city is breaking its own promises by increasing the maximum building height. It's only been 11 years since you folks passed a law to protect the first settlement. Seems pretty short order to be deciding only 11 years later that it's time to change those rules. Allen, along with numerous other speakers, also speculated that taller buildings would be less cost-effective. That's because the necessary materials, like steel and concrete, are more expensive than wood. But Matt Wachter, the executive director of the city's housing authority, says that as building height increases, the burden of material costs decreases. 
what we hear from developers is when you get, you know, past 10 stories, you don't have to invest another dollar in land, say, or, you know, you already got your parking built. So that's where you're really getting those efficiencies is that you're getting more, more housing on, the, on what you paid for for land. Leo Strand, a student at UW-Madison, told the council that the need for affordable housing is dire. Think of the, the young people moving in, not even young, just people, because right now, as much as I would love to stay in Madison, as much as I love the, the community I've met, in every like logical way, it makes sense for me to go to the Twin Cities or another big you know, metropolis because it's expensive here and I, I don't really see a lot of change that would benefit me. And I think this is an amazing opportunity that we really can't pass up. Alder Marsha Rummel of downtown Madison introduced an amendment to limit the site's maximum to six stories instead but it did not pass. And Alder Mike Verveer, who represents that part of town, joined Alder Rummel and three of their colleagues to vote against the 10-story maximum. Despite some vocal opposition, the Common Council ultimately followed the Plan Commission's example and approved the 10-story maximum. The affordable housing crisis has also increased the need for community support. The city of Madison is funding the construction of a permanent men's drop-in shelter on the east side. In the meantime, Porchlight is providing shelter and services in an old warehouse store near East Town Mall. Earlier this month, I visited that shelter to hear from its manager, Ferris Ferris, and one of the former residents that is now helping folks in need find work and housing. I've just arrived at Porchlight's Men's Emergency Shelter. Located in a bustling area on the east side of town, full of strip malls and larger department stores. The shelter itself looks like it used to be a department store, a sprawling warehouse with no signage. At the moment, the parking lot is practically empty. They won't open up for residents until five o'clock tonight. The inside is a big open warehouse space with dozens of beds lined up and a few bunk beds placed against the wall. It's mostly empty with a few workers milling about, bringing in towels and discussing tonight's operations. Uh, my name is Ferris Ferris, and I'm the manager of the Porchlight Men's Shelter. Right now we're just a drop-in shelter before COVID. We were an emergency shelter and we were getting federal grants, meaning that as an emergency shelter, we had a 90-day limit, which was required by federal law as an emergency shelter. But after COVID or when COVID started, when I started working here for, it's been now three years, we removed the 90-day limit because we realized that people needed longer access to shelter. And also we were allowed to get federal grants that allowed us to ease that restriction during COVID. So now we don't have any limit on how long someone can stay since COVID started. And so, so has there been like an increased demand, you would say, uh, for help since COVID started? 
Uh, yeah, most definitely. Um, COVID not only caused the economy to fall, but also uh, inflation rates, the system in Madison with like, you know, a lot of housing rights being skewed towards the landlord rather than the tenant, you know, having to have a criminal background check, having to have good rental history, having to have first month's rent, security deposit, and now last month's rent makes it nearly impossible in Madison for a lot of lower class or middle class clients that we serve to be able to find housing in Madison and then come combined with, you know, the external factor of the system being difficult to navigate, but also the factors of substance abuse and mental health tend to be an issue that causes reoccurring homelessness. And, you know, it's just a lot of barriers. So do you get, what is it, about 250 residents a night? Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, on average, if you take in the whole year into account, we recently in the winter months have been seeing 280 and up a uh, night and during the summer months we see between 200 to 250. This is very different from when I first started working when COVID just started where in winter time and in summertime the maximum was 187 for the 35 years that Porchlight has been running the men's shelter. I think in 2022, early on, we started seeing numbers of 200 and more people come into the shelter. So it's definitely a bit harder to manage, but at the same time, you know, it's uh, keeping everyone safe, keeping everyone feeling like they're supported by staff, giving them respect and dignity and also, you know, just recognizing that they are a community within the community and creating that cohesiveness and camaraderie between our clients is really important to us. And what's the average stay, you would say? How many, how many nights? It depends because about 70 to 80% of our clients who stay at the shelter have no active income except for possibly uh, food stamps. The ones who do have income are either from social security checks or they have work. So it's very difficult to try to get people housing, especially in Madison when they don't have an income. But we try to support people as much as we can, get access to services, healthcare, anything that federal grants or county grants can provide us, city grants can provide us. But yeah, I would say the active stay would be it can range from two weeks. I've seen people come in, get out in two weeks, if they really put in the effort to look for themselves, access services that we have, case management at the shelter, and really follow up and put in the active effort themselves. But sometimes I've seen people who've been here for, sad to say, but longer than 10 years, you know, I've heard that they've been in and out of the shelter for sometimes longer than that. But, you know, in a way we do provide this kind of cozy, secure home facility for those who aren't trying to find housing and they just feel comfortable at the shelter. But we are housing focused, so we would like to motivate people. We would like to support them in order to find housing. But tra part of trauma-informed care is that you allow people to have the choice of what they want for themselves.
but I really believe in empowering people to, you know, seek and self-actualize through their best self. So do you think you could give me the tour, like, from intake to where people go? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the Green Doors at 2002 Zaya Road is where we offer our services at the shelter, uh, for the men's shelter. There's a bus that uh, Porch Light provides, contracted through Kobusin, that does two rounds from the beacon to the shelter in the afternoon and returns as many clients to the beacon by doing two rounds from the men's shelter to the beacon in the morning. The bus arrives, we usually let the disabled guests in first. We place seats out when it's not too cold. We place seats out for the disabled guests to wait from four o'clock to five o'clock. Technically, clients aren't supposed, our guests aren't supposed to arrive till about four o'clock because that's around the time when the beacon closes. But, you know, we are kind of flexible on that and, you know, we make sure to have seats for uh, the disabled guests who are waiting to come in. So then when the beacon bus arrives, they would line up along the side of the building and we'd allow uh, the disabled guests to come in first. Then we would allow the Beacon bus guests to come in. They would line up around this area where it's stationed in lines. It's sectioned off in lines. And we have a security check. Mainly we check for drugs, alcohol, drug paraphernalia, and weapons. If they have drugs, alcohol, or drug paraphernalia that we find, we ask them to dispose of it. And if they give us permission to dispose of it, then we confiscate it and throw it away. If it's a weapon, such as a sharp or a non-firearm, then we deposit it into a weapons locker where then clients can retrieve it in the morning. We also have lockers. We have 150 lockers, even though we serve actively 500 people, you know, who might be in and out of the shelter at once, possibly more. But the lockers is where our guests can keep their items as long as they need in these lockers as, you know, being people experiencing homelessness usually have to, you know, drag around literally their whole house with them and having lockers really supports them and not having to carry things around with them. And you know, it might also be a stigma for like going to a job interview when you have all your things and the employer isn't supposed to discriminate, but I've heard stories where they do, like you know, saying, oh, why do you bring all of your stuff with you, et cetera. So you know, we try to have as many services and things that we can provide, like intentionally thinking about how we can support an individual who's experiencing homelessness. I'm sure you hit capacity all the time. Do you ever have to turn anyone away or what would happen with that? Uh, no, we've never turned anyone away. Uh, we're well over capacity. This building, according to bathroom regulations, capacity is 150. But even in summer, we were seeing 250 or more. We have emergency planning to make sure that we can host 300 or more. And even so, the fire department basically allowed this because the filtration system can fit up to 400 people at once in this building, possibly more. Basically, we won't turn anyone away, especially during the cold months. As shelter is a human right and you know, so is access to food, water and clean environment. So you mentioned the bathrooms. Uh, would you mind showing those to me? Yeah, of course. These are the bathrooms. So, yeah, we clean them every day. We have a cleaning company. They do amazing work. They clean the whole shelter, keep the bathroom spotless every single day. 
within two, three hours of, the of being open, the bathrooms will be very messy. I've seen people try to flush down all kinds of things and be working at a shelter, you have to have a good plumbing system. <laughs> you know, towels, bottles of alcohol, pipes of different sorts. So it's really important to have a good plumbing system mm -hmm. and our cleaners make sure that it is spotless every single day that our clients come in. Mm -hmm. So. So I'm seeing what it looks like about 10 sinks um, and a vanity, some mirrors, that kind of thing, hand dryers. And then do you have showers as well? Yep, showers are here on this side. So there are bathroom stalls on this side, three urinals, and we have showers, about six private showers, and then seven open showers. I understand like you're, you're kind of sort of an improvised space. So do you have much of a kitchen or like how does food service work? Uh, well, our food service currently is can't remember the catering company i would really like to recommend them uh, they they are cooking through high point steakhouse so they bring us individually catered meals that's a huge part of our budget but it's worth it because it's really good meals and we wish to have a kitchen in the permanent shelter that's opening and being built currently by 2025 we will have a kitchen where we will serve possibly two to three meals a day, depending if we're going to be a night shelter or a 24-7 shelter, depending on the funding that, you know, if we're able to do that. But currently we get about 250 meals a day, a night, and we, all, we used to have breakfast, but unfortunately we didn't have that in the budget to offer breakfast anymore. So in the morning we really rely on donations of like granola bars or something, you know, those chewies to offer to our clients in the morning. And we of course still have coffee, you know, it gets people started and joyful to their day. So, you know, we make sure to have coffee, but they do get breakfast. Our guests do get breakfast at the day shelters such as the Beacon and Safe Haven that also serve lunch. I think homelessness is increasing everywhere in America. I don't think the powers that be, you know, politicians and such, really address this as a social issue. I think 10 times the amount of money to solve homelessness in all of America has been sent for military funding. So, you know, not to say anything specific to get me in trouble, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we could solve homelessness in a day, but social issues such as this just doesn't suit the capitalist needs of, you know, the elites running <laughs> America. So unfortunately, you know, we are here at the front lines just trying to give respect and dignity to every human individual that walks through our door and, you know, making our shelter as low barrier and inclusive as possible so that people feel comfortable coming to the shelter. But as I tell everyone, use this as a stepping stone to eventually empower yourself and we will empower you too to improve holistically what you're trying to reach in life as your goals. Uh, my name is Christopher Martin Mackin. You are one of the workers here. What, what's your role? I am a case manager for Porchlight. I work out of the DIS now. Case management is here to provide assistance with looking into housing for people, providing services, getting vital records, pretty much everything across the board, assisting in finding employment. I actually did a short time in jail and lost my apartment when I came out. I uh, stayed in hotels for a while while I was looking for a job because I'd also lost my security clearance. 
and I came to the shelter when I was starting to get low on money and uh, within about a week I was a volunteer and about a month after that I was the head of volunteers and then I applied uh, because I thought I owed something back to the shelter and they thought I would fit best as a case manager and now I occasionally fill in as manager. So for finding a job, like what's the timeline from initially reaching out to you for help to getting hired? That's kind of a two-part question because we have, of course, a sheet that we can hand them the day they come and ask us about it that are the local attempt to hire agencies. So they could have employment as soon as the next day. And a lot of them do end up going to like QTI and People Ready. And then that starts them on the process because then they're actually making money every day. They have a little bit more of a structured thing than just, you know, kind of wandering about idly or whatever it might be. Um, beyond that, uh, a lot of the, the attempt to hire places will put you in a job and then they have the ability to work at that job and then get hired again. Also, we have uh, felon-friendly uh, groups that we work with that are, you know, employers that will hire previous felons. And also <clears throat> with like Amazon and stuff like that out here, uh, there are a lot of places that will start you off at the bottom level and let you work on from there. And then from finding a job to finding housing, what does that normally look like? That is a very loaded question, unfortunately. Depending on their disabilities and stuff like that, there's uh, you know public housing through the CDA, there's the porch light housing and stuff like that. But if someone can get a job where they're working regularly and full-time, unfortunately it's an immense job because like right now we're, we're moving people into like Verona and people into Sun Prairie because Madison's just too full and there's not enough housing but I mean it can be anywhere from two to three months to a year and a half. The uh, public support and donations that uh, we get every day from either the food pantry or just people dropping off clothes here, winter coats, stuff like that is just an immense help and we can't be more thankful for it. residents are looking for more creative solutions to the housing crisis. In February, I spoke to the folks establishing a new Latine-centered co-op called Zapata Cooperative. Their goal is to make cooperative living more accessible to Latine residents, who are sometimes excluded from co-ops due to complications with their immigration status or language barriers. The Common Council approved a grant of over $500,000 to make the project possible. Frida Ballard is one of the founders, and Paul Schechter was instrumental in obtaining the grant funds. They discussed their inspiration, progress, and future plans for Zapata Cooperative. 
What was your initial inspiration to create the Zapata Cooperative? So I guess the initial inspiration came from a house conflict that we had in Nottingham that kind of brought up some issues that I think lie within co-ops that tend to be focused on culture as opposed to meeting an economic need. And I think what my brother Hernan and I realized is that for, you know, a lot of, you know, immigrant folks, the cultural buy-in is maybe not the first necessity and their first want is just meeting physical needs of accessible housing. You know, thinking of that, we realized also that in Madison, like pretty much everywhere else, co-ops are not accessible to non-English speakers. And so they're not accessible to a large portion of the Latino community. Can you tell me how long this cooperative has been in the works? I think we started initial meetings in late 2021. And we decided the best approach to move forward would be to apply for funding from the City of Madison Affordable Housing Fund. And we started that application early in 2022. Frida, can you tell me about the name Zapata? Um, What are its origins and why did you choose it for your co-op? Yeah, so we wanted something that would be pretty easily pronounceable. Of course, Emiliano Zapata is one of the, you know, instrumental people in the Mexican Revolution that gave land back to a lot of people that worked in the field. So taking away the land from Ascenderos and gave them to the people that actually worked them. So we found it kind of fitting to, uh, to this house of, you know, giving ownership of the house to the people that need it. Paul, can you describe the process behind obtaining funding from the city? What kind of support have you gotten from the Madison Area Cooperative Housing Alliance? The main driving force behind the city grant was the nonprofit Sunnyside Development. And this is an affordable housing group that I founded about five years ago. And our mission is to create affordable, environmentally sustainable housing. And there's really no better way to do that, in my opinion, than housing cooperatives, because they inherently embody affordability and sustainability with much reduced per capita embodied energy because there's sharing of the primary main kitchen, the living room, and so forth. And the Madison Area Cooperative Housing Alliance, MACHA, that you mentioned, was actually instrumental in getting the city on board with recognizing that co-ops were a valid form of affordable housing. We wrote, I think, 30 different policymakers in the city, and we invited them all to a co-op dinner. And, you know, breaking bread together is a great way to share good ideas and create a sense of community and belonging. And we we said, look, there's 23 housing co-ops in Madison that have been providing affordable housing for 50, 60 years uh, without a dime of government subsidy. And it's an excellent model. And you guys should really recognize that along with the, the WIDA tax credit projects and so forth. And it should be a valid form of affordable housing housing to sponsor. And it took a while to get uh, everyone to agree, but finally they did. And for the last two years, co-ops have been included in the annual affordable housing RFP offered by the city. Paul, could you also describe the reasoning behind choosing the house that you did? Um, What drew you to this location and how many people do you anticipate being able to house there? Well, as you mentioned, we received $551,000 from the city as a grant. And it's a special form of grant. It's called a license to hunt because the housing market is so hot or it has been. It's been really difficult for affordable housing developers with grant money to actually secure what's called site control in an amount of time that is feasible on the open market because usually there's multiple offers and it's difficult to land a property in the time frame that's needed to to close if you're using grant money to buy it. So a license to hunt does not require you to uh, have a property picked out at the time of application. 
And instead, you get two years to look. And we spent most of 2022 looking. We put um, two offers on properties in uh, South Madison in the Bay Creek neighborhood and the Greenbush neighborhood. And there was about, I don't know, 10 or so other offers. And ours were not successful. But fortunately, in January of this year, we found a very unique property, uh, a McMansion of sorts, just south of the Beltline in, in Madison that, that kind of was a bit out of place uh, for its size and the fact that it had heated floors, jetted tubs, and a six-car garage you know, in a very working-class neighborhood. So we lucked out, so to speak, because there were not a lot of other interested people looking for that property. So, but it was perfect for us. We put it under contract about a month ago, and we will close on it in about a month. And we are going to turn it into a housing cooperative for 14 people, hopefully, uh, thereabouts. And it will be much more space efficient than it was before. Four of the six garages we are converting into livable housing space for low-income families. We're covering the roof with solar panels. We're adding a heat pump to the uh, existing boiler. And we're trying to make it as close to net zero carbon as possible, as well as a a source of, of new community and culture for the Latino community. So, Frida, I was wondering who can apply to live in Zapata. Um, What kind of community are you trying to build? So we're basically, we don't have a lot of the same requirements that other apartments have. Uh, So our housing application process just looks like getting to know people and having them attend a dinner and an interview. So we're not going to require, you know, credit checks because most of our immigrant population is not going to have a credit history in the United States. So we don't want that to be a barrier. But what we look for essentially is can they get along with people and can you abide by the rules of the house, which include democratic participation. Our our culture of the house is going to be based on essentially whoever memberships that moment. We don't have a lot of the same restrictions and we hope to also be able to compete timeline wise with a similar application process that you would go through for an apartment. Paul, can you tell me what's next for the project? Can you walk us through a timeline? Absolutely. So we are under a pretty tight timeline because we closed March 14th. And although we have the city grants, that only covers the purchase price and we still need to do a fair amount of construction. So we are applying to another source of funding from a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution, called Shared Capital in Minneapolis. And they only lend to other cooperatives. And their lending criteria is a bit different than normal banks. Um, They base their uh, financing decisions on the strength of the co-op itself. So uh, that means having a a strong membership, a group buy-in. And actually last night, we had 18 people from the Latino community show up to Nottingham Co-op where we did an information session. And luckily, there was a tremendous amount of interest and support. And I'm very hopeful that we will get this next round of financing We're looking for around $400,000. We've also engaged an architect and we will be, we're working actively with the city. Uh, We are doing weekly tech support meetings to finish all the due diligence items before the closing date. So everything is going as planned uh, and with luck, we will close on March 14th. 
Then there will be a phased build-out, which will last around four months and have people move in as certain phases are completed. And we hope to wrap up the entire project at the end of the summer. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Frida and Paul. Thanks for having us. Paul Schechter says they're now two-thirds of the way through construction on the Moreland Road site. They're in the process of converting their garages into additional bedrooms. Some residents have already moved into the house, which, Paul says, has completely transformed since they initially bought the property. For example, they've installed solar panels to reduce the co-op's carbon footprint. They expect to finish construction in the coming months. And that does it for tonight's holiday show. We've been listening to a year in review on Madison's housing crisis. Special thanks to our Thursday reporter, Sarah Gabler, and our former news producer, Nate Weggehout. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I've been your host, Faye Parks. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast, which you can find on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Access Hour. Have a good night.